Did you know that nearly 40% of us will be diagnosed with some type of cancer during our lifetime? (laughs) That's shocking, right? I was surprised as well. So this got me curious about life with and after cancer. Or in other words, the stories of those still deep in their fight and those who made it through to the other side. I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, we'll discuss life with cancer. I remember the first time I heard the C word. I was eight, and my grandfather was diagnosed with lung cancer. It was attributed to his years of working as a coal miner in the hills of southeast Kentucky. But in all honesty, we'll never know for sure. It could have been a variety of factors, be it environmental, hereditary, or a combination of the two. He lived for seven months, and after he passed, I found myself obsessed with death and dying. And it sent me into a bit of a depression. But then a friend's mom got breast cancer, and she survived. And then my cousin, and aunt, and another cousin, and a teacher, and then years later, a friend from high school, they all got some type of cancer. And the list of people in my life affected by cancer in one way or another goes on and on. But think of your own life. I can guarantee that you have your own cancer story be it a loved one, a friend, or your own story of survival. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 1.7 million new cancer cases were reported in the U.S. in the last year. That's over 430 new cases out of every 100,000 people. Or, if you're really into stats, that's about 4% of the overall population. But what's more striking is that nearly half of the cases result in death, And the annual combined cost to treat cancer is $150 billion. And that's expected to rise as the average lifespan continues to increase. And as I mentioned in the intro, ultimately 40% of people will receive some type of cancer diagnosis during their lifetime. But with those grim statistics, there's a bright side. More than half of the diagnosed cases will go into remission and recovery. As of January 2019, there were an estimated 16.9 million cancer survivors in the United States, and the number of survivors is projected to increase to 22.2 million by 2030. So, this had me curious about life with and after cancer. Today, I'll share the story of an oncologist who treats more than a disease, and another from a grandma who continues to fight cancer long after her cure, and then one from a dad who refuses to give up. Later in the show, I'll be joined by one of the storytellers and the daughter who helped tell her story. Due to the nature of dealing with a life-altering disease, there is some strong language in the stories you'll hear. Listener discretion is advised. Cancer is my specialty. Dr. Michael Williamson's story is told to Dagny Zupin, performed by Carl Frost. People assume my job as an oncologist is debilitating, aggressive, rough, just like the disease. And it is. Cancer is draining and challenging. But the disease walks a fine line. The same line I walk. I teeter on the edge. The line we walk, cancer and I, is thin, barely dividing light and dark. Cancer is rough. No doubt about that. When I take these cases, I'm not just caring for the disease. The disease does not come into my office, sit down in a chair, and wait for my advice. The disease comes creeping in, 
taking the form of a young woman and her concerned father, or a shuffling old man and his fearful child. I care for the patients and their families. It's what drew me to this profession. Treating something like this, you build relationships with people. With cancer, I can't send them off with an antibiotic and know they will heal. This is a journey, and I am their guide. I love these relationships. I find joy and meaningfulness in my days as I learn about my patients. I know more than their latest white blood cell count and more than their scheduled course of treatment. I really know them, the person behind the disease. I know their life before cancer, and I know their dreams for their coveted after cancer. I know all these things, but every night I shut the door to my office, locking these things I know inside the hospital. They will not journey with me back to my home. When I sit at the dinner table with my wife and two children, these patients do not sit beside us. This is what I do for myself. While I build these relationships, I keep a distance. A distance to save myself. Without this separation, who knows, I wouldn't doubt I'd be in a psychiatric ward of the hospital. It's hard sometimes to look at my patients and remember, I didn't do this to them. I didn't give them cancer. I try everything, but always, always, I wonder, could I have done more? As I learn about these patients and get to know them, I give them little pieces of myself, but I'm always careful, always keeping that distance. Because what happens if I give too much? What happens if just one night I forget to lock that office door And then these things follow me home into my sleep and back into my mind. Then I have nothing to give to the next patient. If I allow a patient to cross that gap, then my separation, my perfect system is wrecked. The rest of the patients afterwards suffer. To help them, I need my own spirit healthy. This distance gives me clarity. Because of this distance, I can see another side of cancer the side that is transformative and incredible. Cancer is a spiritual thing. It allows a person to grapple with issues of the heart and spirit, issues they couldn't face before. Cancer is an opportunity, really. It may sound morbid to you, but I see it every day. This disease changes people. It takes them to a place of intersection. Whatever was going on before is belittled and the opportunity for reconciliation is suddenly laid bare to the patient. This reevaluation of the quality of time is something I wish for all people. Whoever preached turning lemons to lemonade was a wise person. That's the way I see my job. I take this monster and I try to put a positive spin on it. I feel a special calling to help these patients and their families. I accentuate the families and interests of my patients, not their diagnosis. When I think cancer, one of the first words I think is spiritual. For some people who accept the wake-up call, cancer is a calling to release and let go from this earth. I encourage them to heal from within, to use their will of spirit. I see these cancer societies and groups talking about the war on cancer, and I'm not a fan. 
I'm all for raising money and finding a cure. How could I not be? But I'm not sure about calling it a war. It's something that happens to people. An experience. Not just a disease. People can fight it, but it's not a war. Oncologists see cancer every single day. It's strange, actually, to see something so frequently and not experience it for yourself. Cancer happens around me all day, but it never happens to me personally. It's as if I'm behind a glass wall at work. I'm safe and sound behind my wall, but I can still hear everything, still see everything the disease leaves in its wake. I'm on the outside looking in. I walk the thin line every day between light and dark. I see the dark side from behind my glass wall, aggressive and rough, and I want it to stay there. From behind the safety of my glass wall, I make my lemonade in the light. The Consequences of Cancer Connie Robertson's story as told to Amy Robertson West performed by Amy Leffingwell. I don't remember very much about that night. I was lifted into the darkness from the roof of St. Vincent's Regional Anderson. I felt myself moving toward the light. I pictured my husband Mike's silver-bearded face, my children and their children, uh, Brad, Amy, Ryan, Corey, Sarah, and Cass. I remember all their names. I'm still here, I told myself. As long as I can remember them, I'm not going anywhere, but I asked God to please not make me list off all of my grandchildren in order to stay on earth. There are too many of them, and I wouldn't be able to do that even on a good day. I knew it was a race against time, and I was terrified that the blades of the Lifeline helicopter were winding my clock down. My destination? Unknown. But as long as I'm terrified and have that feeling, I reminded myself that I'm still here. We landed at St. Vincent Heart Center, and I was greeted by Dr. Waltz, the most handsome and one of the youngest doctors I've ever seen. They don't have physicians like that here in Indiana. Maybe on TV, but not Indiana. Maybe I was on my way out after all. Then he said he was my cardiac surgeon, and I told myself, maybe I'm going to make it after all. And I did, but barely. Dr. Waltz shared with my family that the odds of surviving a ruptured aneurysm event was 10%. He couldn't believe it. No one could. But I could. My kids tell me to stay home when I don't feel well and take a load off, but what they don't know is that if I took a load off every time I didn't feel well, I'd never go anywhere. I'd never do anything. Besides, you either keep going or you just stop when you have as many doctors and diagnoses as I do. I had just recovered from an invasive back surgery when I had the aneurysm and had been walking around for a long time with 80% of my nerves pinched. So many aches and pains, it's hard to know where one source of pain ends and another begins. If I'm being honest, I try not to complain and just keep going. But this next time, it was different. I had an unbearable pain in my jaw that I've never had before, and I, I knew something was very wrong. We went straight to the ER, and on September 30th of 2014, the day after my 66th birthday, I survived my second aneurysm. This wasn't just your average, everyday, ordinary aneurysm. This was a dissecting, ascending aortal aneurysm that had begun to burst. My aorta had shredded to pieces. It was a big deal. I mean, do you know how many people survive one aneurysm? 
How about two aneurysms, along with a hysterectomy and living with lupus, osteoarthritis and chemo-induced type 2 diabetes, liver, and cascading heart failure? Oh, and tissue damage. I don't know, but our late 18-year-old family cat, Betty, must have shared her nine lives with me. The question is, how many lives do I have left? How many has cancer taken away from me? Cancer came knocking upon my door and pushed its way in 14 years ago. Cancer didn't care that he, yes, my cancer was a he, piled it on. He didn't care that I was caring for my own mom, who had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and who had just entered a nursing home. He didn't care about any of my kids' and my grandkids' needs or milestones. Cancer didn't care about my grueling 5 a.m. work schedule as a line cook at Ball State's dining hall. He didn't care that he took the lives of some of my co-workers. He didn't care that he disfigured me by taking most of my left breast, my lymph nodes, and he certainly didn't care that it led to repeated cases of cellulitis and a permanently swollen left arm, and likely my aneurysms. Like so many before me and countless others after, he gleefully took the hair from my head and burned my body with radiation. He forced me to take steroids that altered my appearance just to endure what he was dishing out. And when my cancer center doctors, nurses, family, friends, and I finally kicked him out, he had me looking over my shoulder and living in fear of his return. Worse, he didn't care that he made me feel guilty for surviving his devastation when others haven't. Cancer took so many things away, but the fight for my life brought out the very best in me, gave me strength I never knew I had, and united my family and friends forever. And what cancer underestimated was the flourishing apple tree I planted many years ago for my children and grandchildren. I gave my apples freely to them because chemo may have my arteries weak, but not my soul. Every single day, even the bad ones, is a gift. I'm still here, and I'm grateful. I decided to stop being mad. Brian Fitzgerald's story is told to Eddie Metzger, performed by Larry Beck. For my annual physical, I went to a doctor who was from Philly. He had these big, meaty, sausage fingers and was the classic Sicilian guy. During the physical, he said, Fitz, you've got to relax. I said, you're taking my virginity. And he goes, you're going to break my finger. After we started over, he said, it looked like I had an internal hemorrhoid. I thought, hell, I can deal with that. So I went to Delaware to see a proctologist. Just to be safe, she wanted to do a colonoscopy. But a few days later, I get a call from her telling me the insurance isn't going to cover it. I was too young. Mother f- Oh, well, it, it would have cost me $4,800 out of pocket for the procedure anyhow, and, and I wasn't going to pay that to get a hemorrhoid checked out. So I decided to take it easy, knowing I'd eventually get better. I mean, it, it was only a hemorrhoid. At, at the same time, my daughters had been driving my ex-wife crazy, so I, I took a year off and came to Muncie to help out. But I also relaxed. I painted, I even took a motorcycle trip across the country. I told my daughters I was going to Chicago for two days with my buddy, and we came back five weeks later. I'd call them up every night, and they'd ask me where I was. Ensenada, Mexico, I'd say. They couldn't believe I drove my bike all the way down there, but I did. 
It was fun and exciting. Soon after, I started to feel tons of pain and discomfort. I went to Indy to meet Dr. Atit Shaw, and he urged me to receive a colonoscopy. So I bit the bullet, and I did. Once I woke up from the anesthesia, I turned to the nurse and asked her what the news was. Oh, it's bad, she said. How bad could it really be, though? I'm fine, right? We stopped counting at 67 polyps, she said. The next day, out of nowhere, the doctor tells me he's going to rip out my colon. I'm starting radiation, and they're going to shrink the tumor. Depending on the size of the tumor, they were probably going to take my rectum, too. It was like rapid fire. All of this happens fast. So over the next 36 days, I go through chemo and radiation, and about a month after I stopped the chemo, I had the operation. They took out all of the goods. Recently, I've told the doctor that throughout the week, I'll have maybe one or two days that are complete hell. When that happens, I tell my daughters that I'm fine, but then I go out to the garage and scream. Because of the pain, I lose sleep. I wake up in cold sweats, drenched, like you just walked out of the White River. I wouldn't wish this upon anyone. To ease the pain, all the doctors start telling me to smoke pot. My friends did, too. I said, no, of course not. I don't need pot to feel better. But the other day, I broke down and tried it for the first time, snuck down into the basement when I thought the girls weren't home. Then I heard it, my youngest coming down the stairs. I panicked and hid the pot as frantically as possible. Why does it smell like weed in here? She asked. Weed? Pot? I acted as dumb as a stump. I don't know what you're talking about. What does pot even smell like? Turns out the stuff has helped. I've slept great the past few days, and I got my appetite back. Despite the pain, I haven't talked about my experience much. I'm a pretty quiet guy, keep to myself. I tell my daughter's bare bones minimum, but I spent about a week being mad about the diagnosis. I was pissed at the world. How could this happen to me? I didn't miss a day of Catholic school. I was mad at my family and their genes. I was just pissed. Then I decided to stop being mad. I told myself, you can either get busy trying to help your body cure itself, or you can get busy doing nothing and die. Well, I'm not in any position to die yet. When I was a kid, a running joke was that I would never make it to 21. All my buddies teased me about this. Well, I made it to 21, and I'm going to make it past this, too. I want to welcome to the show Connie Robertson and Amy Robertson-West. Connie's story was featured in today's episode, and her daughter Amy helped tell it. Connie and Amy, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. It's good to be here. Thank you. And I also want to share with our listeners that Connie and her husband, Mike, used to be my next door neighbors. So in many ways, this feels like a reunion. And yep. Corey and I We've definitely miss seeing you. you in the neighbor. I know. Please don't share that <laughs> no. on air with the listeners. We were able to just catch up a little bit just and kidding. share old stories. But yeah, we were we were once neighbors. So Connie, I want to start with you. You told your story in Facing Cancer back in 2017. How are you doing today? I've had stage four lung cancer for four years. I, I'm doing great. 
I'm like on our my fourth different chemo treatment, and this chemo's not quite as bad as my other chemos. I've had some that make my fingernails fall out. And, I mean, it's been awful, but things are looking up a little bit. I mean, I still have stage four cancer, but nothing's really terrible right now. And, and I'm happy because I'm with my family still and not sick all the time. Mm-hmm. And you were first diagnosed in 2002, is that correct? I had breast cancer in 2002. Okay. And then you had a series of other chemo. health ailments. I had chemo for six months and radiation got up. up no more lung cancer or breast cancer. Mm-hmm. But then I had a, an aneurysm that was repa- repaired. And then after that, I had another as aneurysm that had me going to the hospital in a helicopter after my granddaughter's volleyball tournament and she always blamed herself because <laughs> it was so exciting and I did a lot of screaming and yelling and was on the way home that she has the loudest parent grandparent oh my god every yes single game. I was yes. like off my seat and every time Sydney went into it was really good she was in junior high then so yeah what I love about your story is even though that was a tragic moment and you were airlifted, you talk about seeing the doctor and that he was a really good-looking oh, gorgeous gosh, doctor. So cute. <laughs> doctor was Walls. in a commercial. And you thought, <laughs> I must have died. We don't have doctors like this in no, Indiana. How do you keep your sense of humor through well, it all? It's real easy when you're in a helicopter and you're scared to death and you're in pain and all of a sudden the helicopter door opens and the wind is blowing through this handsome guy's face and hair and I'm going oh my god this is my doctor so anyway <laughs> I felt I was in God's hands <laughs> yeah <laughs> so right. to speak yeah anyway I, they operated on me I guess I came pretty close to not making it but I was determined to get out of that hospital quick and by golly I did mm-hmm and you're still here with us, and still you still here. have the good I'm determined. sense of humor. I am determined. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, Amy, you'd written on several facing projects prior to this one, but this time it was personal. What was it like to carry your mom's story? Oh, it was so important for me to tell this story. Um, not just for our family, but um, for other people to give them hope. Um she has survived so many things against the odds. Um, and then I should also say, during the last four years, she also survived having um, sepsis. Mm. Uh, and, you know, she wasn't supposed to survive that, but she did. <laughs> Thank you. Well, no, I mean, it, you were very sick. <laughs> so she managed to survive the pandemic and not get COVID. And she managed to survive having sepsis and pull through. Um, and uh, she's a force of nature. When you met with your mom and you went through the interview process to capture the story and collaborate with her, how was that different from other projects you'd written on in the past? I often, my mom has a lot of words. Uh, <laughs> even before this interview, I, I said, well, try to keep it short. Try not to use too many words. And... When I talked to her about, you know, when I was gathering this story, um, I did exactly the opposite. I just allowed her to talk. And just I wrote copious notes 
And uh, I think that's what made the story so uh, meaningful. Um, Because as you know, the facing project harnesses the first person perspective and it forces someone to empathize with their storyteller. And uh, it really, I had to step outside myself because I was experiencing it alongside her, but it wasn't me. This wasn't my story. It was hers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, she worked at Little Red Door at the time and she was so compassionate with the people that came in there. People don't know. She would come to my house in tears Mm. because she'd get so close to them and then she'd find out, you know, they were dying or it's just, it would just affect her so much. So mm-hmm. so I do want to talk about Little Red Door. So for our listeners who don't know what that is, it was an organization that helped reduce the physical, emotional, financial burdens of cancer. And you were in that role when you helped tell your mom's story. That's how right. did that role at Little, your role at Little Red Door, how did that prepare you for something so close to home? Well, I've said this often and I'll say it again. Um, it made me realize that uh, it wasn't uh, a race or a sprint, but a marathon. A cancer diagnosis is a marathon. Um, and also, uh, you know, I, I just learned so much strength from watching families go through this. And, you know, they allowed me to help them during that time. And I really didn't feel very helpful. There's nothing you can do, I mean, to stop you know, advanced cancer. I can't do anything about that, but um, just be there and uh, help navigate. Um, And what one of the things that I found so surprising through this experience and then really like my professional hat, wearing that hat, is helping the younger generations play a role um, and bringing them to the table and allowing them to help lead and not just family members, but you know, students that would volunteer with the organization, mm-hmm. um, interns, and really giving giving them a chance to help lead. Um, I think that for me, that helped me feel good about the work that I was doing. Mm-hmm. Connie, what advice do you have for someone who is facing cancer? Well, my granddaughter just got married, and her, who is now her mother-in-law. She's younger than me because I'm old. But um, at the wedding, she was out there. She had her first chemo a couple days before that, and she'd already lost her hair. It was that bad a chemo. Um, She got out there and didn't let anything stop her. She went out there, and they danced to Greece because apparently they did that dance at their wedding so they knew all of the moves. Oh, that's great. And their kids were so, you know, just totally into them. She did not. She was tired. She was exhausted afterwards. But that's what I say. Don't give up. Just keep your, keep being funny yeah. and laugh. And keep dancing. Right. Keep I love dancing. that analogy. That's right. Connie Robertson and Amy Robertson-West, storyteller and writer, and mom and daughter featured in Facing Cancer, thank you for joining me and telling your stories. Thank you for having us. If you or a loved one are facing cancer and need support, resources, research, and a network can be found online through the American Cancer Society at cancer.org.
stories from today's episode came from Facing Cancer in East Central Indiana. We want to thank Dr. Adam J. Cuban, his students in the Englehart Scholars Program, and Amy Robertson-West for organizing this Facing Project. Michael Williamson's story was written in collaboration with Dagny Zupin and was performed by Carl Frost. Connie Robertson's story was written in collaboration with Amy Robertson-West and was performed by Amy Leffingwell. Brian Fitzgerald's story was written in collaboration with Eddie Metzger and was performed by Larry Beck. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Or just ask your smart speaker to play The Facing Project on NPR. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com. To continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in beautiful and wonderful Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by the amazing producer and sound engineer extraordinaire, Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jamison. And until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Mm-hmm.